Today, Hebrews 12, that's where we're going to be. We're going to work through the first half of that chapter. Hope you got my email. We are ending our series on spiritual growth today called Grow. And uh, so let's get to it. Hebrews 12. Why should you listen today? Well, um, here's the imperative about today. We have spent about four or five weeks talking about what it means to grow in Christ and how necessary that is. We Look, just, just responding to the grace of God for salvation is, is not what the Christian life is all about. He, he calls us into this life of fruit bearing and productivity and, and kingdom involvement for the sake of his glory. And um, so the, I, he's not going to be part of my sermon today. He was, but so what, what, what the point is today is, is that you can, you can have been tracking for the past four or five weeks over everything we've talked about regarding spiritual growth, you can be tracking with the fact that we've got to grow. You can be tracking with repentance when we talked about that. You can be tracking with, with the fact that the Bible has got to be central to your life. And you can be tracking with the, the, the importance of community in the local church in your life. But I think that many of us can be at a place where we're like, you know what, but I just, I don't know if I really, I'm apathetic spiritually. And so today we're going to talk about, and in this series, with this look at desire, striving for God, having a heart to, to let Christ grow in your life. And so that's where we're going today. So let's do this. Hebrews 12 is where we're going to be. Let me pray and we're going to get started. Lord, thank you for the Bible, for the gathering of the church. We come from a million different perspectives and backgrounds in this room today. We, we, some of us grew up in church and we We've become apathetic and we kind of know all the answers and this is just rote habit for us. If that's us, stir us today. God, stir us. Some of us are just getting into this gig and we're a little nervous and timid and we have very little idea, concept of who Christ is and what it means to be a Christian. God, for that person, would you encourage them? Would you speak to them? Would you let them feel the warmth and the, the irresistible grace of your Holy Spirit? And God, for, for the rest of us that are probably in between those, those two spectrums, God, would you, would you right now not make this a time of just going through a passage and giving a few thoughts and ho-hum sermonizing and then we get out of here and go eat lunch and take naps? God, if that is it, would you somehow cause the sound system to malfunction? Would you let the air conditioning go out? Would you let the children storm the room and, and, and just blow this place up? Because we don't need just another cute little talk. But we need, we need to strive for holiness. We need to sink our teeth into the gospel. We need to realize that you have come to give us amazing joy, which gives you great glory, which makes you more attractive to a lost world. God, the hope and the glory of your name is on the line in our meager little individual lives. So God, would you stir us? Would you help me not be boring? And God, would you break through? into our hearts today because these are critical issues. We need to be a church that goes beyond ourselves and loves the glory of God and the gospel and the transformation that can come through a group of people like us. So God, would you do something in our lives in spite of me? And I prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go. Hebrews 12. little context. Hebrews is a letter written by, and we're not really sure who, maybe it was the Apostle Paul, very likely him, or one of his ministry associates. And it is written to a group of Jewish people who have become Christians, and they are 
kind of waffling. They have... They have been um, ethnically Jew. They were Old Testament people. Their righteousness from their childhood on was gained through you know, the Old Testament view of animal sacrifice and obedience to the law. And now Christ has come with a new covenant and has made these Old Testament people of God now new covenant Christians. And they're encouraging some hostility, probably some hostility from their Jewish friends and relatives who are telling them, why have you accepted this new and strange way? They're also probably receiving some hostility from the current culture that they were living in, the Roman Empire. And so they're, they're waffling. They're thinking about maybe cashing in and going back to Judaism. And this writer is writing to them about the beauty of Christ, how much better he is than this old way. And he's writing to them about the, the gospel, the sacrifice of Christ, that it is no longer bulls and goats and birds and, and, and obedience to some law, but now Christ has come and fulfilled that law for us on the cross, gives us his righteousness so that we now can fulfill God's spiritual law. And that's the first 10 chapters of Hebrews and then 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is this beautiful chapter about all these Old Testament saints who lived by this faith, looking forward to Christ. And now we get to Hebrews chapter 12. So that's just a little background. Because we hate to parachute down into verses out of context here at Crosspoint. All right, Hebrews 12, verse 1. This is a beautiful portion of Scripture. We're going to stop along the way, make a few points, and then settle down on verse 14. Let's go. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and what he's referring to there is this, this Old Testament group of saints that he unpacks in Hebrews chapter 11. And the, the, the scene really is, is that there's these, there's these Old Testament saints. And by the way, I love Hebrews chapter 11 because it starts off with all this victory, like Moses and Enoch and Abraham and these great people of the faith. And the, the picture here is that these Old Testament saints are in heaven looking down on these current people in Hebrews chapter 12. And now us encouraging them saying like, you know, come on, you can do it. That's kind of the, the picture that we get here is that because we've got these witnesses that are that are just saying, come on, you can do it. That, that, that take that into consideration that, that God and the heavenly host is for you. But what I love about Hebrews 11 is it kind of smacks the prosperity gospel right in the mouth. If you've been here for more than two weeks, you realize that the prosperity gospel that you hear on TV makes me want to throw up in my mouth and stick a fork in my eye at the same time. But don't get me started on that because I was kind of gross. I'm sorry, but, but Hebrews 11, it talks about these great men of faith. The first part of the chapter who did all these things, you know, slayed lions and conquered kingdoms. And then it mentions in the second part of the chapter, also these great people of faith that, oh, oh they were, they were sawn in two. And so the point is, is that, um, just because things don't go necessarily well for you in this life doesn't mean that you're not a great person of God living for him. In fact, sometimes it'll go very, very bad for you, but, but that's not the point today. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The first thing that jumps out to me in those first two little verses is this, this differentiation between sin and 
and wait. It says that we're going to have to do two things if we're going to run this race, grow in Christ. We're going to have to lay aside sin and wait. Now, there's one little distinction I want to make here. First is um, uh, sin kind of gets a sin kind of gets a, a bad rap in churches. I don't, I don't know if that sentence makes any sense, but but of course sin should get a bad rap in churches. But I think probably for most of us that grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt here in the Deep South, we we tend to kind of we, we tend to think of Christianity as preaching against sin, which it is. There's there's no doubt about that. There's a way to live and there's a way not to live. But we tend to, for those of us that have got some church time under our belt, kind of tend to think of subconsciously, and I think it's because we haven't historically done a good job of explaining the joy of Christianity. That Christianity really just comes to 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 tell you what you cannot do, and that sin is basically this more pleasurable way to live, that if you're going to abide by Christianity, you've just got to grit your teeth, bear down your knuckles, and deny yourself, because if we could all be honest, wouldn't we really rather be out partying, getting naked, and waking up in the back of an El Camino? (laughs) That's... That's... I've, that's going to be a classic moment in the history of Crosspoint. Not exactly the reaction I was looking for. But, but here's the point is, is, is don't we kind of act like sometimes that Chris, we buy into this message that Christianity is kind of like a denial of the things that are really enjoyable so that we can get to heaven. That is a profound and rampant lie. Just a couple categories here. Money, sex, and power. Right? Money, sex, and power. I mean, a good bit of the sin that we all struggle with falls in one of those three categories. There's this lie that that, that hoarding for yourself is actually the most pleasurable thing. And if you go to church, they want your money and they want you to give to the ministry. It, it is so much more pleasurable to let money go through your hands and give and not hoard than it is than it is to just take, take, take. It is so much more pleasurable to have nothing and give to people than to have everything and be miserable. See, it's a lie. So it's sinful to hoard sex. It is so much more pleasurable to give your heart and your body and your soul to one woman or one man for your life in marriage, in Christian marriage, than it is to fool around and get naked and feel guilty and find fleeting pleasure in broken sexuality. But this world presents the Christian message as if sin is something that we'd really like to do, but somehow or another, Christianity has denied us. But I have found... From personal experience, that married sexual fulfillment is far better than any broken thing I participated in before marriage. But we don't, there's joy in Christ, there's joy in living for Him. Power, or influence, or just, just being a person. Look, it's far better to give and to serve and to make more of other people than to hoard influence for yourself. And so the Christian message is not one of grit your teeth and don't sin and be a good little boy and hold on and tuck in your shirt and and don't do this list of things and then eventually you'll turn 90 and die and you'll get to go to heaven where the streets are paved with gold. That's 
That's not the Christian message. There is joy in living for Christ. And sin is, sin is a broken, poisoned imitation of the better things that God has for us. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing is wait. It says, so, so lay aside that broken notion that you're missing out on something, which is, you know, this sin... And then also lay aside weight. And I think for most of us, this is probably plagues us just as much as sin. Weight. I mean, there's a, there's a differentiation here between sin and weight. Just stuff in our lives, man. We are the most cluttered people, I think, in the history of the world. We have got more technological gadgets. We have got more TVs. We have got more cars. We've got more stuff. We've got more gear. We've got more. And listen, I'm, I mean, I'm. I'm preaching to myself here. We, we are cluttered. We're weighed down. And if you looked at each one of those individual things, you couldn't necessarily say, oh, well, that's sinful or unhelpful to you. But when you gather it together, we live weighted down lives. Are we not like a mile wide and an inch deep? We are, aren't we? And so, so I think before we read here, just a quick point. We just, do we understand our sin issues and do we understand the weight that so easily clings so closely to us and we're going to get to thinking along those things in just a moment so um we're the most weighted down culture in the history of civilization verse three consider him who endured meaning jesus now consider him who endured endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, when it's tough and you just don't feel like you're getting any traction spiritually, when you're battling with sin, when you're battling with the weight of culture and our lifestyle and the, the frazzled hurriedness of our life in this age, remember what Christ did on the cross for you. Remember, and, and I refer you back to a couple weeks ago when we talked about Hebrews 10:14, where it says that he has made perfect those who he is making holy. This seeming contradiction that Christ on the cross does this beautiful, great exchange, the, the theologians call it. In fact, Martin Luther first coined this phrase, the great exchange, where on the cross, Jesus takes our sin, takes our fallenness takes our struggle with the weight. And then for those that would believe in him, he gives us his righteousness. And so when you're in the middle of feeling down and like you are a hamster on a wheel that is making no progress spiritually, consider Christ who did this for you, who endured from sinners hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen to this, verse 4. In your struggle against sin... You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And the writer here quotes some passages out of Proverbs 3. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Listen to this, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Listen to what's going on here. God is saying this, through this writer that the difficulty that you are facing right now is and very well could be evidence of your salvation and sonship or daughtership. And God, that is... That is 
That is staggering. We'll continue. We'll explain that in just a second. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, meaning God now, listen to this. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And so how does God discipline you? It's not like he comes back down from heaven and Jesus puts you over his knee and paddles you. He allows you to go through trials and sufferings and difficult things and all the while is getting you to get your hands off of these things and your eyes on him so that you can see that he is actually through this process growing us and proving us and endorsing and confirming that we are in fact his so that we can grow in holiness that is stupendous verse 11 for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Well, we can answer a common obje- objection here, one that I have often. is, well, God, God, I get this. I get that I'm your son. But can't, can't, can't we just make this a little easier? I mean, can't we just kind of, I mean, isn't there a soft road here? You know, I mean, if this is a video game, is there a novice level that I can, can, I can choose here before we get this thing going? And, and I think that we, what we have to realize here is... Um, I think every person needs uh, a personal Copernican revolution. What is a Copernican revolution? Well, there was this Polish astronomer back in the 1500s, and his name was Nicholas Copernicus. And if you look him up on Wikipedia, there's a really cool drawing of him. He's got some long hair, big long nose, really cool looking cat. But he was an astronomer in the 1500s. And before Nicholas Copernicus... The thought, astronomy-wise, was that the earth, that the universe, everything in the universe, rotated around the earth. And Copernicus had this, this novel idea. He says, no, actually, and he postulated this theory, which is called the helocentric theory of astronomy, that actually the universe rotates around the sun. And, and it actually, come to find out, Copernicus was true. He was right. He was, he was right on the money that everything doesn't rotate around the earth, but everything rotates around the sun. And so this, this phrase, Copernican revolution, I think can be applied to our lives that, that, that most of us live lives where we basically sort of instinctively think that everything kind of rotates around us. And when that happens, we then become very susceptible to discouragement when the solar system of our life doesn't rotate like it should. But when we realize that it doesn't rotate around us, and we have this personal Copernican revolution, realize that actually everything is rotating around God for His glory, we can begin to understand how God, whether, whether it is a tragedy or whether it is a triumph, can get glory from every situation. In fact, that's the whole point of the book of Philippians. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to a group of people and he's in prison and his response to being in prison is yes guess what guys i get to witness to the roman guard now he's writing to a group of people 
the Philippians, who when he, in the book of Acts, when he ministered to them and helped start a, 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 a church there for them, he was thrown in jail and he was broken out of jail miraculously by God. But now... Years later, he's in jail again, and God evidently this time is allowing him to be disciplined to go through a trial so that Paul could share in his holiness. And Paul, of all people, had had a Copernican revolution. He realized that he was not the center of the universe, that God was the center of the universe. And so whether he, and we know this verse, we put it on t-shirts and coffee cups and bumper stickers and it's a great verse but we got to sink our teeth into it that we can do all things through christ who strengthens us but the verse before that says that i've been hungry i've been well fed i've been content i've been miserable i'm paraphrasing here but he says that whether i am full or whether i am empty the world doesn't rotate around me but god can do something and in fact is doing something in my life I think growing in Christ, we've got to understand that, that the world is God-centric. And the discipline, whatever you're going through right now, I think God wants to use that to produce growth in you. So somebody just pause for just a second and say, your struggle right now, your frustration right now, how do you view it? How do you view it? God, how could you be letting me go through this? Where are you? And I think it's okay to be like that because you read the Psalms and they're full of that type of language. In fact, one of the things I love about King David is he was schizophrenic. You'll read one chapter in Psalms and it's, God, how lovely are your dwelling places. My heart pants for you. And then you one page over. Where are you, God? You have forsaken me. So, hey, look, mood swings, mountain peaks, valleys are a normal part of the Christian life. But the point is, is that it's okay to lament. It's okay to be frustrated. But right now, God, God may be just putting his finger on your frustration or just the seeming the seeming difficulty of everything that you try and do for God. And he may be trying to do something. In fact, I would venture to say because of the sovereignty of God, if you're a Christian in Romans 8, 28, that says that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. I would say that I'm on strong scriptural grounds here saying that without a doubt, he's trying to get your attention to this and say that, do you realize that even in this strain and this struggle and this frustration and this battle with sin and this this inability that you seem to have to focus your life and this, this clutter and this feeling that you have where you were just going a hundred miles an hour but getting nowhere. Do you see that maybe in all of that, that is a God-ordained and allowed deal to get you to get your hands off of these things on this earth and your eyes on Him? Listen to one of my favorite writers. I've quoted this before, J.I. Packer, a really old guy. He's in his 90s now, probably the greatest theologian of this last generation. He wrote a book called Knowing God. It's a Christian classic. One of those books that I recommend that you have on your bookshelf. It's on our website under our recommended reading list. And this is what J.I. Packer says about verses like this in trial in the life of a Christian. He says about God, picking up mid-sentence here. He says, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world 
and attach those hands to himself. Right now, just by the Holy Spirit, do you have the perspective that whatever you are going through, God is in it, involved in it for your good. That is a revolutionary thought. It is a Copernican revolution that all of us need to go through in our lives. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I love this type of language because my dad was a football coach and I sat in many a halftime speech when we were down by seven. And he, one time he grabbed a can of Coke and threw it against the wall and I was just a little ball boy. Whew, I mean, it was like, bam, right there. And I can just picture God in his, just in his love and his encouragement for us saying to us, therefore, come on, son, come on, daughter, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Not, not, he's not saying just grin and bear and just suck it up and do it. Come on, because you're, you're tougher than that. He's saying, he's saying, there's this cloud of witnesses cheering you on. There's this son of God who came and died on the cross for you, who gave you his righteousness. There is this security that you have. There is this guarantee. There is this Holy Spirit that has come and filled you. And as Ephesians 1 said, has sealed you for that day. And now, yes, you're going through a trial. But don't you realize that this is actually in a mysteriously profound and sovereign way ordained by God to bring about fruit and strengthen you. So in the midst of that, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And come on, come on, come on. You can do it. And then he unpacks this beautiful verse. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And then, and we're ending on this verse. Strive, 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 strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, cross point, yeah, take these past four weeks, do it, man. Read your Bibles, come to church, memorize scripture, serve, repent, get outside of yourselves, grow, but strive, strive. There's this word strive we need to unpack here. There's an interesting thing about this word is that, um, well, let's back up and say there's a couple of common objections whenever you start talking strongly. Come on, we've got to do it. A lot of people will throw up their hands and they'll say, ah, oh, legalism. You know, legalism, Brad, there he goes again. All the things I've got to do. Well, Let's remember that we're living in the backdrop of probably the most spiritually lazy and apathetic culture in the history of Christianity. Can I get a north-south on that? We're all part of it. Okay, good, good. Um, Here's legalism. Let me define legalism to you. Legalism is when you take the commands of Scripture and you go through them in observance in a religious, outwardly only sort of way, and think that you can gain right standing with God simply by adhering to a list. Read Matthew chapter 23. Jesus offers seven woes to the Pharisees and scribes for their outward only observance of the law, but inside they're wasting away. And so this type of legalism hangs, hangs holiness on whether or not you, you know, can do some list. That's, that's legalism. 
The other type of legalism is taking things that are extra biblical and adding them to it and saying that holiness and righteousness and good standing with God comes not only with believing in Christ and receiving his righteousness, but also wearing these type of clothes, listening to this type of music, abstaining from this particular beverage, and all of this kind of stuff. Extra biblical. And so what we do in kind of an apathetic Christian culture is any time the Apostle Paul or the preacher brings some heat and says, you've got to live this way, we say, oh, legalism, legalism, legalism. No, it's not. It's obedience. It's obedience. The Scripture calls you. It calls you, young man, if you're sleeping with your girlfriend, stop! Young guy, if you're getting wasted on Friday nights and Saturday nights and showing up here and acting like you got everything together, stop! Not because, remember back our sin talk at the beginning, not because we're asking you to deny yourself so that you can hold on and be a good little Christian boy because God has something better for you. If you're flirting with your secretary, stop! If you're treating your wife like worse than your dog, stop! And that's not legalism. That is obedience, man. That's obedience and there's joy that comes with that. And so with that as our backdrop, the Scripture calls us to strive, to strive, to put everything we have into living for God, to give our heart and our mind and our soul, to be, to be so unattached from this world that we don't care how cool it comes out. We don't care about confessing sin. We don't care whether or not we look right. We don't care whether or not we have to admit that we're not where everybody thinks we are. That We, we want to strive. And this word strive in the original language of Greek is really interesting. It's used in other parts of the scriptures, in particular in John chapter 5, to, to, to um, denote that the Pharisees were pursuing and persecuting, chasing down Jesus to kick him out of their town. John chapter 5, verse 16. The same Greek word that we interpreted strive in Hebrews is used of the Pharisees chasing down and trying to persecute Jesus. And in this sense, it's used for us to pursue holiness. And so I think the context is, is that strive isn't just a, oh, I really, uh, I want to. I just, you know, come on, Jesus, help me. It's, it, there's, there's some intensity. There's a, there's a ferociousness to this. It's like, come on, I realize what's in... What's on the line here? God has done this in my life. He has called me to not just avoidance, but great joy. And he's, he's, he's given me the righteousness of Christ. He's sealed me with the Holy Spirit. He's got Moses and Elijah cheering me on, evidently, according to verse 1 and 2. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it on the line, man. I'm going to go after it. And I'm going I'm to get my elbows dirty. I'm going to get dirt underneath my fingernails. I'm not going to care about outward appearance. I'm going to confess sin. I'm going to have hard conversations. I'm going to get drastic with my set schedule and cut out the stupid stuff. And I'm going to go. And I'm going to throw away my TV if it's causing me to stumble. I'm going to take my computer and I'm going to throw it in the Chattahoochee if I can't stop downloading porn. And I'm going to go after God. I'm going to go. Because what's on the line here is Christ's fame. And what's at the end of this is our great joy. So, cross point. Strive. Strive. Strive for peace.
and holiness without which no one will see God. And Lord, as we prepare now to respond, I know the hour is late, but give us the unusual grace of not being fidgety and uncomfortable. I think you want to do some business with us today, God, so would we respond with intensity? Would you help us respond? And God, I'm aware that uh, some of us probably just need to pray a prayer that, God, I, I just, I want to want you. I want to strive. I, I don't even know how to strive. And so, God, would you help us just begin to offer up a prayer of saying, God, help me even have this hunger in my heart for you. Maybe that's your starting point. You're like, Brad, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, Brad. Okay, stop, stop shouting. I get it. But you see, you don't understand. I don't even, I don't even, that flame isn't even burning in my life. So, so we're, okay, I'm with you. I understand what you said. So what are you going to do? Are you going to sit there with your hands in your pocket and go through another Sunday? Or are you going to just do a cannonball on this thing? And you're going to say, I've got I to gotta have some people pray for me, man. I've got to confess my apathy. I've got I to gotta just let some people put their hands on me, as it says in the Scriptures, and stir up the gift of God. Fan into flame what God has put inside of me. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you just need to pray for desire to strive. Maybe you've been striving and you just need a Copernican revolution in your life and you need to realize that God is in every everything in your life. Struggle, trial, success, triumph, tragedy, everything. And he's wanting to detach your hands from the things of this world. And attach those hands to himself. And at the end of this is joy. Oh, there's joy. One of my favorite preachers says, he has this line. He says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is not against your unbelievably satisfying joy. He wants that. But he wants you to do it in him. And when you do that, he is most glorified. So God... Do that in our lives. For the young guy that's struggling with sin, who's struggling with just this, this, this fence-riding way, God, would you break into his confused heart? God, for the couple that is weighted down, God, would you, would you give them a strive for focus and clarity and priority? God, would you do that today? Would today, would they mark today as the day that you began to bring clarity in their life? Would today be the day that they would date back and say, on that day, God began to give me focus and direction so that I could strive and lay aside the weight that clings so closely so that I could run with endurance the race that is set before me with great joy. God, would today be that day? And would we respond? In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Um, We're going to sing a song or two. If you want to receive communion, it's open to you. This is a beautiful, sacred thing that we do as Christians where we're remembering Jesus' broken body on the cross and his spilled blood. You don't have to be a member of Crosspoint to partake in it. But I think you should be a Christian. The scriptures are clear in that when we do this, we should remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took our sin. He gave us his righteousness. And then we should examine our lives in light of that. So if you want to receive communion on your own, 
You can do that on your own. There's some benches over there for you to kneel. If you need prayer, man, come on, don't be bashful. Let's go. Enough of this silliness where we're just kind of come at. Come on, just come. If you need prayer, myself, Reynolds, Don, a couple other guys will be down here to pray. Pray. Come on, pray. Pray. Let's be honest with each other. If you need to worship, if you need to sit in your seat, stick your head between your knees and say, God, have mercy on my soul. And let's do it. But let's not look at our watches and rush out of here because nothing's more important than striving for God. Let's respond.